much. It's great to be back with John because I knew him a bit when he was in the Interserve office and I was uh, up in the north of England at that time, I think. Uh, great to be back with you, John. And I'm grateful that you have forgiven me for leaving Portswood Church a few years ago <laughs> and welcomed us back. Um, and it's good, of course, there is uh, chopping and changing between the churches and that we're not sort of totally shut off. I know you've got a few Highfieldians here and we've got a number of ex Portswoodians with us. So that's great at Highfield. Yes, so it's lovely to be back. And I'm sorry, I'm not very good at names. My forgettery grows daily. But I know a lot of faces. I can remember them. <laughs> that's good. So anyway, to our next passage, which is not the easiest of ones, I think, because I struggled with it a bit. Page 1151, I think, in the church Bibles. Uh, John, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning at verse 14. <coughs> 1 Corinthians 10, beginning at verse 14. Page 1151, I think, in your church Bibles. And do keep it open as we go along because I'm trying to stick to the text fairly well. Okay. So, idols, feasts, and the Lord's Supper. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons and not to God. And I don't want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without burying questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If some unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if anyone says to you, this has been offered in, this, in sacrifice, then do not eat it both for the sake of the man who told you and for conscience' sake. The other man's conscience, I mean, not yours. For why should my freedom be judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the Church of God, even as I try to please everybody in every way. For I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example, as I follow the example of Christ. It was at St. Bride's Church in Old Trafford, where Rosemary and I were working, when we were organizing a farewell party for the outgoing vicar. And he had set up this project to reach the Asian community around us in Old Trafford. There were a lot of Asians there. And we wanted to try and attract them to the church for this farewell meal for 
the vicar. But we had to somehow to make it possible for Muslims to feel happy there because they wouldn't want to eat food they reckoned was um, idolatrous, I think, um, <coughs> uh, halal, for forbidden, haram, forbidden. So we thought, well, there's dear old Fatima, who was a lovely, sweet Gujarati Muslim lady who might be willing to do the cooking. Uh, and she at least could cook the halal food for the Muslims who came, if they did, and we could eat the rest. So Fatima agreed, actually, and she said, I can go in that church because they have no pictures in the windows. They have no pictures in the windows. She was terrified of any uh, idol worship. And, of course, Islam forbids any kind of representation of God, whether it be a picture or a statue or whatever. And St. Brides, of course, was mercifully free of such things. It was a modern church and didn't have such things. So any representation of men, women, or animals are forbidden by the Quran. And indeed, one of the objects of uh, uh, Muhammad himself way back, when he marched and led at the head of an army into Mecca, was to uh, purge the Kaaba, the sacred shrine, of the idols and things that were accumulated in there. Well, idolatry or food sacrifice to idols sounds a bit, perhaps a bit distant, remote from us here in the 21st Britain. Paul has been dealing with it for three chapters, actually. If you've been coming regular, and I hope you have, and it's great to be part of a sequence, if you've been following it, this question of uh, food offered to idols and idolatry and the rest of it is a live issue in Corinth, and he's been talking about it really since chapter 8. So he has three chapters of this, so you should know something about it by now, shouldn't you? <laughs> Um, but it was a live issue because Corinth, like many Greek and Roman citizens, uh, cities, would have been full of idols on every corner, temples here and there, statues, whatever. And most of these Christians at Corinth had probably been idol worshippers. Uh, it was largely, I think, a Gentile church, a non-Jewish church. For Jews, it wasn't a problem because a good, pious Jew believed only in one God anyway, and when the gospel came to a Jew and he received it, he received it as the fulfillment of all the Jewish history. And uh, Jesus was proclaimed as the Messiah, who was, had been promised long ago by the prophets and had now come. For it was no problem to a Jew, this business of idolatry. But for people who came from a, an idolatrous background and who had worshipped in uh, pagan temples and perhaps uh, been led astray to all sorts of um, dubious practices sexual things, whatever, in a temple, it would be very difficult for them living in a place like Corinth where the whole culture was steeped in idol worship, idolatry of various sorts. So living there in that city, uh, the Christians were swimming against the idolatrous tide. Well, you have to see this passage then against that sort of background. It's Paul's final argument in these three chapters about getting involved or getting sucked into idolatry again. It seems to fall into two sections. The first bit, beginning at verse 14, is to do with idol worship or worship at the Lord's Supper. And the second bit, beginning at verse 23, is the question of how far a Christian has freedom to go with particularly idolatry and whatever in mind. And actually, I want to take them in the other order. I want to take the second bit first, if I may, beginning at verse 23, and then go on to the first bit, because it will lead nicely, and I hope, to the Lord's Supper we celebrate just now. But first of all, notice the introductory bit to both sections, you might say, verse 14. 
where he says, verse 14, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. And my dear friends, that phrase, is an unusual one in Paul's writing. He doesn't often use that phrase. Why here? Because he's particularly concerned for those Christians in Corinth. He founded that little church. He knew them personally. He wasn't just talking, uh, you know, using fancy language, my dear friends, rather like in the Anglican prayer, but we have dearly beloved brethren. And the person who uses those words may not have a clue who these people are, dearly beloved brethren. But uh, he really meant it. My dear friends, my dear, dear friends. He's really concerned for his audience. He knows them personally. Flee from idolatry. Go on fleeing from idolatry. It's a present tense. Go on. Keep in clear it. Go on. I think the message, that rather free translation or uh, paraphrase, if you like, of the, the Bible is helpful here. Um, Eugene Peterson in his translation says, So, my very dear friends, when you see people reducing God to something they can use or control, get out of their company as fast as you can. It's interesting, his, his, his interpretation of idolatry, uh, when you reduce God to something you can use or control. In other words, reducing God to, you know, you think we understand him and we have a distorted picture of God. We only see half of God. And we're not worshipping God at all. We've got a sort of wrong conception of God altogether, which will distort our whole life. And he says, avoid those who um, are worshipping God, uh, can, trying to reduce him to something you can use or control. Though I don't think, actually, at this point, he's got it right entirely. Because you can't avoid people altogether, people who practice idolatry, because you meet them every day. What I think he is saying here, Paul, is saying, avoid the practice of idolatry. You can't help meeting people. You only have to go across the road to Waitrose and meet people, Sikhs and Muslims and others. Uh, up and down, there's so many, aren't there, in Portswood and elsewhere today in our modern cities. We've got people who worship all sorts of things. And you've got atheists and uh, people who worship money and pleasure or themselves in different forms and so on and Mormons, and Jehovah's Witnesses. We've got the lot. So you can't escape them. You'd be running out of this world if you tried to escape and run away from them. We mix with them, and indeed we ought to be meeting them in a sense to try and share what we know of the love of God in Jesus Christ. But, says Paul, flee from the practice and worship of idols or any reduced version of God that you know of. So, Flee from a false picture of God. Don't dally, don't meditate on false pictures of God, but meditate, he says, on the revealed picture of God, the revealed truth of God in the person of Jesus. Jesus is the truth, the full truth. I think as we sang in one of those songs just now about Jesus, God is the truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So if you want to know the truth about God, look at Jesus and, and of course, the scriptures and things uh, that tell us about him and look forward to Jesus coming in the Old Testament. But that's why we daily should make study of Bible a part of our praying and meditating and thinking because you've got to get a right picture of God or we are worshipping a mental idol, even if not a metal idol. So to the second half of this passage, that's the opening verse, verse 14. My dear friends, flee from idolatry. Going down to verse 23... Paul says everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Paul insists on his freedom as a Christian. Perhaps we don't always think about that enough. 
But Paul says, I am free. It comes again and again. If you look back, I'm sure you remember chapter 9, where you did that a few weeks ago. Am I not free, says Paul. Am I not free? And then in chapter 9, verse 19, he says, Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone. Paul is insisting again and again, I am a free man in Jesus Christ. I'm released. And then in this same passage, uh, 1029, verse 29, our in present passage for today, he says in the second half, Why should my freedom be judged by another's conscience? All the time Paul is speaking as a man who has been freed in Christ. And particularly, of course, for Paul, that meant being freed from a legalistic attitude to the law. Poor old Paul, or Saul as he was, must have struggled to try and get to God by observing all the rules and regulations and traditions and whatever of the Jews. Not only the written law of God in the Old Testament, the law of Moses, but all the amplifications and, uh, and additions that the, uh, the rabbis and scribes had added to it. A terrible burden to try to get. And I guess Saul was aware as he rode that day to Damascus, <coughs> intending to persecute the Christians. He must have been aware that something was lacking inside. He hadn't really found God, and he hadn't quite done enough to get to God, to prove his own righteousness. And so it was a wonderful, it must have been an astonishing relief when Jesus finally revealed himself and said, why do you persecute me? And showed himself to Saul on that Damascus road. <coughs> and all that fell away, and he realized he was saved, <coughs> not by anything he could do no amount of scoring points with God. Nothing will put him right with God except that God had met him in Jesus. This Jesus whom he had been persecuting. He was saved by God's grace alone. God's totally undeserved mercy. Like you and me, we are saved simply by God's undeserved mercy. So Paul rejoices in his freedom in his letters. For freedom, Christ has set us free, he says in Galatians. And 1,500 years later, Martin Luther, struggling for years to get to God by doing all the things the medieval church told him to do, penances and rituals and pilgrimages to Rome and wherever, medieval church was saying, you know, come on, you do this and you'll get right with God. And wonderfully, Martin Luther discovered the truth that he was a free man through the grace of God. He didn't have to work for a kind of righteousness because God brought him into a right relationship through faith. Luther said, a Christian is the perfectly free Lord of all, subject to no one. He, like, knew, like Paul, knew what freedom is all about. And I hope that you do too know, and we know something about Christ's freedom. I hope no one here is struggling like Saul to become Paul, how, he, how we're not struggling with all sorts of do's and don'ts and efforts and trying to get to God by pulling up our own you know, boot strings, whatever it is. However awful our sin, however often we've failed, how often, however guilty we may feel, God meets us in Christ, has met us in Christ, has forgiven, has pardoned us. It's like the lovely story that Jesus told about the the son, you remember, the prodigal son who took his share of his dad's property and went off and wasted the lot in riotous living and then came back with rather mixed motives. He thought, if I come back, perhaps, perhaps I get a job as a servant in my father's house. I'm wasting my time here and getting, I'm starving here feeding this chap's pigs. 
And pigs, of course, were, were forbidden to Jews. They shouldn't have anything to do with them. Here was this Jewish boy coming home in rags and smelling of pigs, sad, a terrible loss of face for him. And he came back hoping he might get a job as a servant in his father's house. His old dad looks down the road and sees this ragged son of his who he could have been so angry to see him coming back. But instead, he picks up his long robes and runs down through the market, out there and puts his arms around his son. And before his son can even get out his apology, I'm not worthy to be your son, he's saying, come on, let's have a party. Kill the fatted calf, have a great time. And that's you and me, stinking of pigs, if you like, but we are accepted for Jesus' sake. We've sung it, I think, in several songs already, and that's good. We are pardoned, free in Christ. Free to serve Christ. So, with Paul, we might well ask, why should my freedom be judged by another's conscience? Ah, but then that brings in the other factor which Paul is wrestling with in this very passage. Our influence or concern or love for other people. Verse 23. Everything is permissible, I'm free, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Nobody should see his own good, but the good of others. We may have no particular worry about uh, some course of action which we rather enjoy doing. We may seem perfectly okay to us to watch perhaps a rather risque film, movie or some movie or something, or to go to a rather dubious night club with a friend, or a certain pub which perhaps has a bad reputation, or engage in heavy petting with somebody before we're married. Whatever it is, we may have something we feel perfectly free to do. This may be perfectly okay. But the question is, is it constructive? Is it permissive? Not is it beneficial? Is it beneficial? Does it build up my mate with whom I do these things? Is it constructive? Does it help my brother or sister to grow in their life as a Christian, near, bring them nearer to God? Or does it in fact distract them from God's purposes? I may be totally free, but I must use my freedom to build up my friend, my brother, my sister in Christ, not draw him away. And Paul here talks about this question of food offered to idols. He says, if you're invited to a meal by a non-Christian, well, don't worry what you eat. And in those days, I understand that most of the meat was offered as a regular thing in the temples around the town before it was actually sold in the market. So it was a perfectly normal thing to, to buy meat that had been offered already to some god or goddess in the, in the, in the, in the town. But the question was, what happens if Somebody, uh, somebody raises the issue with you and you obviously realize he's got, a slightly, uh, he's got a dubious conscience about it. Paul says, well, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, so it's okay if you can participate with thanksgiving, but if it's going to upset the other man and lead him into sinning against his own conscience, then you should abstain from eating this meat if he raises the question. The message, uh, this sort of free translation, brings it over very clearly, I think, and very... Um, uh, helps us to understand it much better when he says, it's a paraphrase from verse 26, I think, the earth, after all, is God's and everything in it. That everything certainly includes the leg of lamb in the butcher's shop. If a non-believer invites you to dinner 
and you feel like going, go ahead and enjoy yourself. Eat everything placed before you. There'd be bad manners and bad spirituality to cross-examine your host on the ethical purity of each course as it is served. On the other hand, if your host goes out of his way to tell you that this or that was sacrificed to God or goddess, so-and-so, you should pass, not eat. Even though you may be indifferent as to where it came from, he isn't. And you don't want to send messages to him about who you're worshipping. It's not simply that you don't want to send messages about who who you're worshipping, You, of course, also don't want to lead him to sin against his own conscience because at the end of the day, whatever we may think, we have to obey our own conscience because that's our final arbiter, if you like, in these things. We have a conscience is really our mind working and trying to discern what is right and what is wrong. And we cannot, other people may say such and such a thing is okay, but if we are, if in the back of our mind there's this scruple where perhaps it isn't okay and we've been thinking about it and we can't get it out of our head, then we should obey our own conscience. At the end of the day, we have to obey our own conscience, not other people's. So, Paul says, don't lead your fellow brother or sister in Christ astray by doing things which he, which you may feel is okay, but he is not at all sure about. You may talk to him, but don't force him to do something which he doesn't want. So, completing that quotation from Luther... Luther said, the Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none, but he goes on, and a dutiful servant of all. The Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none, and a dutiful servant of all. So other people really come first, even though we are free in Christ. An example from our experience in Old Trafford, if I may. <coughs> we were walking among, working my stations there, and as part of the job, I used to take parties from the Christian churches, before churches involved in the project, take them to visit the local mosques and the local gurdwara, the Sikh temple. But one of the churches was um, not at all happy about this. They felt that we were somehow compromising by going to a place like a Gurdwara temple um, as Christians, that we shouldn't do this. And they're worried, I suppose, about the demons who might lurk behind uh, that kind of religious system. I felt it was okay, because, as Paul says, we are free and we're safe in Christ. We used to pray before we went to the temple or the mosque that, God, we wouldn't come to any harm. We were learning. We wanted to learn where our brothers and sisters in Islam were coming from, how can you help them with the truth if you don't listen to where they're coming from? You've got to make the gospel relevant to their particular needs. So I thought it was perfectly right to engage in this sort of dialogue with our friends from other faiths. But I could not and should not mislead those from this other church who had scruples about it. It wasn't for me to do that. I had quite long discussions with their pastors. But it wasn't for me to try to persuade people, if I could, to come along on these groups to visit the temples and so on. Now, briefly, that's uh, the first bit of this, pa- the second bit of this passage. If you'll come back with me to the first section, beginning at verse 15, where he's thinking particularly about the contrast between idol feasts and the Lord's Supper. I speak to sensible people, says Paul. Judge for yourselves what I say. 
Isn't the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread which we break a participation in the body of Christ? Paul doesn't specify how God makes himself available, present to us, in the Lord's Supper, but he does use very realistic sort of language. Something objective is happening. God is not absent from this. This is one of the, way, one of the ways by which God communicates himself to us. This is not just an empty memorial service, not like standing for two minutes before the cenotaph, uh, silence, remembering our dead, because Jesus is not, not dead. He's here, and he's the host at this meal of the Lord's Supper. I think, again, if I may quote from the message, it's very free, but it gives us something of the gist of what Paul is saying and makes us perhaps startle us a bit too. He says, When we drink the cup of blessing, aren't we taking into ourselves the blood, the very life of Christ? And isn't the same with a loaf of bread we break and eat? Don't we take into ourselves the body, the very life of Christ? And because there's one loaf our many manyness becomes oneness. Christ doesn't become fragmented in us, rather we become unified in him. So here, as we very shortly I think we're going to be breaking bread, which we're doing it not in an absence of the Lord, but he's going to be here and communicating himself with us, and therefore we should take this very, very seriously. And Paul applies this, of course, to the um, situation he's in with this question of some people who participate in these ritual meals they had in the temples. And he's saying, how can you worship God in the temple and participate in these uh, temple worship and at the same time be an attender at the Lord's Supper? You can't do it. And behind the idol in the temple may well be a demon lurking. They're not worshipping the true God, no. They're empty things, these idols. They're nothing. They're bits of wood and statues and whatever they are, you know, made of beautiful things. But behind them, the demons may be lurking, and they are around these demons. We can't pretend they don't exist. So Paul says, you can't do that. You, you've got to be, uh, abstain from temple worship if you really want to have communion with the Lord here. And he warns us um, very clearly, and you'll be coming to that, no doubt, as you carry on in this series on one, in, in 1 Corinthians, about the dangers of coming to communion in, an, in the wrong frame of mind. In chapter 11, next chapter, verse 27, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. It's a very real thing, God making himself known to us. We need to come in an attitude of genuine repentance, acknowledgement of our failures and sinners, and trusting in the Lord and committing ourselves to him in faith. There's something very objective going on here. We have real fellowship with God, and I trust real fellowship with one another around the table. My dear friends, flee. Don't play about with meddle or contemplate anything that reduces God to something we can use or control. The fullness of God is in Christ alone. And we should make it our objective as we go into a new year to get to know this Christ, the fullness of God in Christ. So we're not worshipping any idols, we're correcting our pictures of God by what we see of Jesus and his word and the Holy Spirit teaching us, opening our eyes more and more to see his truth.